forever. Dog. Hey, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. This podcast, as I mentioned in the past, and as I think I mentioned uh, in this episode, has been going on for about eleven years. And for today's episode, I got to talk to someone who has been on my wish list since beginning the podcast. Um, I'm such a huge fan of Bonnie Hunt. Um, her early shows on CBS, um, The Building, and uh, Life with Bonnie, that was her third show, uh, and Bonnie, which was previously titled The Bonnie Hunt Show, um, were so formative for me. Uh, they had such a natural way of existing in the world, uh, and they were so different to so much of the comedy that was on at the time. The rhythms were different, and, and I talk about that with uh, Bonnie Hunt today, um, that they, they awakened me in a lot of ways to what you could do with comedy and the way that the TV you made didn't have to sound like all the other TV that was on TV. Um, and she is a testament to that, um, you know, that she got these at-bats and then she hit them out of the park every time. And listen, the building was canceled after something like eight episodes and Bonnie was canceled after a season or two. And Life with Bonnie, I think, went two seasons. But there's something indelible about her voice and the way she sees the world that people responded to. And part of that was an honesty and part of that was uh, a truth and part of that was a warmth. Um, and she has all of those things and you will hear them in today's interview. Um, you also may know Bonnie Hunt from uh, as an actress. She, she's been in a million things that you have seen in love. Um, she's done a lot of voice work from A Bug's Life and Monsters, Inc. and Cars, Toy Story. Um, early on in television, she starred in the show's Grand, which we talk about, um, which was a really interesting show. It was a cool show um, that starred um, Sarah Rue and Joel Murray. Um, John Randolph was in it. it. It's really neat. And she talks about how she sort of started writing on that show, even though she was an actor on that show, not hired as a writer. And then her next show, which if you are of a certain age, you've probably seen was Davis Rules, which was a weird show in that it starred uh, Randy Quaid and Jonathan Winters. And um, Bonnie uh, came in in season two and she talks about why she was brought into the show. Uh, and it's a great story. And, and really, uh, like all the stories she tells, really sweet and heartwarming um, and, you know, she talks about being a nurse and she's still involved in, in nursing and healthcare causes. Um, anyway, I was knocked out uh, 11 years in the making and uh, I was not disappointed. Um, and I hope I did not embarrass myself. Um, but this was as nervous as I've been for an interview since I think Norman Lear. So <laughs> please enjoy this chat with Bonnie Hunt. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Genuinely thrilled to chat with Bonnie Hunt, uh, of whom I have been a great fan for a long time. So thank you, Bonnie, for taking the time to chat with us. Oh, thank you. Very kind. 
Um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about your new show. Let's talk about Amber Brown, and then we're going to get into all of it. Okay. Um, I watched the pilot of the show. I think it's terrific. It is utterly charming. Um, I would say folks who are bereft about losing Babysitters Club, this is your new show. Um, tell me a little bit, if you would. Um, I, I was struck by how much this is a Bonnie Hunt show. What makes what makes this a Bonnie Hunt show? Well, maybe you could say that better than I can, <laughs> but I I think um, you know I always try to, regardless of the demographic, it might have been sold or aimed for. Um, you know, I just try to write at the top of my intelligence with heart and humor. That you know, a show that the whole family can watch or anybody can watch and find something in it that you know, it's like music. It's like a symphony. Am I hitting the right notes? And is there great harmonies? And that's what I love about putting an ensemble together. And um, the show is, you know, I always like to do stuff very character driven. And mm -hmm. I was writing this demographic, um, not audience wise, but story wise, starting with the sole character around that age, uh, based on me being an aunt, because my mom was like, come on, you should write for that generation, speak to them. They need you. You know, and I'm like, I don't know, mom. I don't, I don't, you know, I have nothing preachy to say, but I definitely can relate to them because most of the dilemmas I had as a teenager, I still have till this day. <laughs> well, that, that was <laughs> like, something very therapeutic. Absolutely. Uh, that's something I kind of wanted to get into, which is having rewatched, uh, a bunch of episodes of your your previous shows like this feels of a piece with those yeah yeah it's my you know it's the rhythm i like is you know as authentic as possible um somebody getting a glimpse into the life of and uh, for this i just wanted you know anybody to see when the parents are alone they're thinking one thing when the kids alone she's thinking something else mm -hmm. and there's always you know these d parallel universes going on and it, it you know, it's kind of uh, nice for me to take the wisdom and humor of my family and apply it to this, these books by Paula Danzinger, make the character of Amber Brown older uh, and mm. present day and give her, you know, a little bit more of my humor and personality. Um, and it's been so fun because I was able to do the subtext of her subtext by adding her, you know, making her an artist, giving her the animation is another way to get her sarcasm and humor out mm -hmm. where it might not be so cute to hear her talk like that. But boy, it's delightful to think that she thinks like that. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, those kids that are smart and funny and, rah, 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 you know, it's like you can hear the writer in every character. I like to hear the characters in every character. Yeah, I th and I think that comes through again in this show and in really everything we've gotten from you that you have written uh, and written and directed. Um, well, thanks for thanks for getting it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you know, I, I well, I've been, no. Let's let's talk about that for a second um, because I was really struck in watching. I you know, like I said, I, I went back and watched a bunch of the previous shows, and the these came out. Uh, for the most part throughout the 90s and then into the early 2000s. And there was a sitcom boom at that time, right? An explosion of sitcoms. But your shows have a rhythm that is different from the sitcom boom. Right. Yeah, well, definitely I'm inspired by like a Preston Sturges style or Claudette Colbert throwaway sure. comedy pathos and intelligence you know that's the goal um or something like the andy griffith show which is timeless and hilarious and character driven uh but 
you have to understand when I started doing this in the early nineties, first of all, I had to get everything approved because nobody had ever written and started an executive producer show before. And I just said, well, I'm just a storyteller. Just, I just want to see it through. I just want to see it through. Finally convinced them to let me do it. And, um, you know, I had overlapping dialogue and if the characters made a mistake, I'm like, just keep going, just be natural, be real. So the rhythm was different. And, you know, it became, it started to become more of the norm, you know, shows were like, oh, look, they're improvising. You know, I did it way back when, I don't know, there always has to be a pioneer to do something. And then the other people kind of come on and (laughs) get the gold. That's just the way it is. So I always tell myself, be careful not to say, oh, you know, I wish I got credit for this, or don't they realize I did that first? It's more like, can I believe I even got the chance to do it? That's that's a good attitude. I mean, I think you have to have that attitude. You have to, because we're just, we all want to do it. We all want to make it. All of us storytellers out there want to be writers and directors and actors. I know I was a nurse. I mean, I went to nursing school. I worked at a cancer ward for seven years. And um, I think that foundation in my early twenties, just the gift of perspective for my patients, Mm -hmm. not that I have it all the time, but I've been really lucky to have it when I've really needed it. Um, you know, when shows get canceled, the hardest part for me was always, I have to go tell my crew, you know, over a hundred yeah. people that are my team that I wouldn't have been able to make this vision come to life without all of them. And all these guys always reminding me of my dad and my brothers and my mom and my sisters, like they were the worker bees and that's what I am. And so that was always the hardest part of letting go of something. Mm-hmm but definitely keeping in perspective that I even had the chance. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I do wonder like, because those rhythms of that realistic rhythm hadn't really taken hold yet. Like what were the conversations at the time that you were having and trying to get this material through, trying to get it on the air? They just didn't understand it, and, yeah. but they liked it. Hmm. It was so odd. But I got to tell you, when Life with Bonnie was canceled, this was the conversation from the network executive. And this is a verbatim conversation. Hi, Bonnie. Um, Yeah. uh, So your show, I mean, you know, the writing just flows. I mean, we just love it. We can't wait to get your episodes. And we all, that's like the first one, we we read your stuff. We actually just sit down because we love it. I said, oh my gosh, you know, thank you. It's right around, we're finding out if we're renewed or canceled. And he said, but the rhythm is so different. It's just smart in a different way. And, um, you know, the other shows surrounding it, they don't have that. And I said, so you're canceling all those shows, <laughs> you know, knowing that it was mine that was going to be axed. Um, but, you know, it's just such a bizarre phone call. I remember hanging up with that, just telling me how great the show was and how proud he was to be a part of it and how smart and funny and the we can't wait to get your scripts but unfortunately it doesn't fit in with everything else it's just a little less challenging so um oh and, and i always hoped i'm like just give me a little more time because people get it you know yeah. they're with us and you look at all the classics cheers and taxi and these shows didn't take off till that third season you know yeah. it, it's just uh, i loved creating those worlds so but the good news is with the people who got it like yourself, mm-hmm. it stays with them. And, you know, those are my people. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and like you say, it was nice to see TV start to catch up, you know? Um, and the other thing was like, I was struck by, even though you get this note, uh, and I'm sure you, you got this note a number of times, 
the shows didn't, you didn't dumb them down. You didn't change them. No. Mm-hmm. Um, was because there... I'm not a writer for hire. You know, I'm a storyteller mm-hmm. for hire. Mm-hmm. There's, I have friends who have the ability to go and write, what do you need? I can write it. Right. I could do that, but it would be like a homework assignment to me. And I was never very good at homework. So um, I just have to really kind of feel it and tell the truth from, you know, my own experience. And uh, I just remember life with Bonnie. They were like, you can't wear glasses. And so I mean, they go, well, we never, leads in sitcoms don't wear glasses. So I was the first sitcom actress to wear glasses because <laughs> that was, and I said, well, I just feel more comfortable. And, and honestly, I was, my vision was changing and I was like, the contacts were so uncomfortable with me. I kept blinking. I go, just let me wear the glasses. I said, there's a lot of girls out there with glasses, <laughs> but the, you know, just like the, the conversation, like here, I just gave you this script that I think I've worked so hard. I'm worried about my glasses, but that's showbiz, you know, that's what makes it hilarious. Well, that's what makes it hilarious and, you know, soul crushing at times. Yes, yes, it um, is. But for any storytellers out there, just keep writing. You'll find yeah. your audience. Well, well, I want to talk about that. I mean, tell me about how how you keep at it. You know, like you you got these shots to make these shows and, and films and things like. Is there a story you're trying to tell? Is there something in your head that you're trying to convey that that takes all these stabs? Like, how, really, the question is like, how do you keep at it? How do you tell these writers who are facing defeat, you can keep going? It's a big question. I guess I long for the feeling I got from great writing as a kid, watching the end of Andy Griffith show, seeing a Preston Sturgis movie, watching Frank Capra, you know, it's like you, there's just, or Claudette Colbert, you know, I mean, there's a rhythm. Uh, it, it's like a compliment to the audience. You know, like you get it, you hear me, you, you know, this is funny. You relate to this. Um, I don't have to hurry up or spin plates or have, you know, set up, set up punch, which is all fine. It's just not what I wanted to do. And so what keeps me going is the people that get it. Like when people come to me in the grocery store and they quote lines from return to me or just something that stays with them. And it's, it's so meaningful. And then it's the process, the people that you come across. I mean, I'm friends with almost every single person I've ever worked with. It's phenomenal. You know, we stay in each other's lives. And there's a lot of times that I've been gone. I mean, I kind of dropped out of showbiz for many years because, you know, I, I was a caregiver. Um, and my family was hit with one serious thing after another. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I was where I was needed. And, you know, I just remember my dad saying when I wanted to just go to Hollywood and be a writer, but he wanted me to go to nursing school. He's like, what are you going to write about if you haven't lived? So, uh, you know, it's great. it's great advice. Writing is therapy. And I always just start with dialogue. I know that people say, do an outline, do what works for you. Yeah. If you've got to carry it around in your head until the last minute, do that. You know, and I know people say, well, I write eight hours a day. I'm like, oh my God. You know? <laughs> I mean, what, what a sentence. <laughs> yes. But it's like, some people have that discipline. I sure. don't. I just have the characters take me on a journey. Well, let's let's talk about that process for a minute, and maybe we can talk about Amber Brown. But in general, left to your devices, yeah, how do you start same. to? Yeah, how do you start to discover a story? I always just start with dialogue. Mm-hmm. I just put the characters someplace, and I don't even know what the show is going to be. Sometimes I didn't know what Amber Brown was going to be. I just knew I wanted to fulfill my mom wanting me to write for that generation, and then also bring oh, wow. her wisdom and humor that. I was lucky enough to have in my childhood, even when times were really hard, um, 
we found some humor in it. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that families can, they always love each other, but a lot of times they don't like each other. And I just love to access that part of it. Uh, so I always just start with dialogue. I start with a scene, whether they're in a cab, I don't even know where they're going. I'm just like, let's see, they're in a diner and they're ordering something to eat. So it just starts with the mundane mm-hmm. and then it grows from there. And I try to encourage young writers that ask me you know, what to do. I'm just like, just start writing them talking, whether they're in an elevator, on a bus, or at a diner or in a beauty shop, whatever they're doing, just start them talking to each other. And then it grows from yeah. there. You start to hear those voices. Right. Yeah. And then you miss them when you're done with something. <laughs> yeah. You know, when something gets canceled, I'm like, oh my God, I got to leave them all behind. You know, <laughs> um, it's interesting to hear that you start that way because it feels it feels improvisational, right? It feels very much like performing. Give me a stage. situation. Yep. Tell, give um, me a location. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about how those things feed each other. You know, improv, and I've had this conversation in the past on this show, like, to me, it seems like improv is writing. You're just writing in the moment. Absolutely, it's writing. There's no, there's absolutely no difference than to me. Um, And, you know, I didn't have no other training except being at Second City. I I went to nursing school. So, um, you know, being at Second City, the audience was your teacher. You got a location, you went to a character and you knew right away whether they not they whether or not they believed you. But if you could make a character authentic enough, the laughs were going to be huge because nothing's funnier than the truth. So, you know, that just becomes a sixth sense for some people. And for me, I was just like, this is writing. I'm writing this stuff and people are really laughing at it. And every night I was writing something new every single night on my feet. When I got to Hollywood and there was weeks to write an episode and and then I would get the stuff. I'm like, how long did this take to write? (laughs) Why why, you want us to add some stuff here? And, you know, Second City people just, you know, that's what we do. So uh, and then when I was on the road with Second City, I was doing all Elaine May's material. They gave oh, me wow. a lot of her material. So my God, talk about the bar being set high for the type of writing and characters I, I expected um, because of her genius. Um, yeah, I just wanted a part of that. When I got when I wrote on my first show, which was Grand, I was writing on that show even though I didn't get credit. Um, I felt like a drug dealer. They'd call me at two o'clock in the morning. Can you come to the writer's room? I go, yeah, sure. I just want to be part of the team, you know? (laughs) So if you're a young writer and you can get in a writer's room and help out, even if you feel like you're giving your stuff up for free, it's okay because it's a great education, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting to me. I mean, was, did it feel like an open enough environment on that first show where you had a voice for your character, for the story, that kind of thing? It became that way um, mm-hmm. after I was there for a few weeks. And when they first started, when I first wanted to meet with them, I never got a show because of an audition. Hmm. I always, I don't know. I never, it's just so weird how my career evolved, but they didn't They're have a script weird. yet for that. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they didn't have a script for the show yet. They had characters. And I said, oh, well, I can do maybe a couple of the characters for you in the scene. And they're like, what? You know, and I said, well, that's what we do at Second City. And then they were really nice and let me try it. And so when they started writing the show, I just, you know, you want input that I would always wait to be asked. And um, they let me come in. But then there's a turning point where I was writing a lot. And then a lot of my material that I was writing for me was going to the other actor. <laughs> Um, which was fine. I was still thrilled. They were using my material. I was, I loved it. 
Uh, but then I found out there was a writer's guild and people got paid to write. That you didn't have to write your own stuff when you were an actress. I didn't know. And um, sure. I really didn't know anything, anything about the business. Well, that, that that's yeah. so interesting to me. And, and honestly, it's why I started this podcast, you know, over a decade ago is I didn't know anything about the business. And I knew right. there must be people out there who did. So was that time on Grand like the, the learning curve for you? Yes. Yeah, they. I mean, the show was really funny, and uh, smart. And I remember the network had a problem with one of the characters, and they blamed the actor, but the character—not blamed the actor, but thought the actor should be a different actor. And I remember being in that meeting and learning so much about the way at that time the network mind was. They're like, okay, well, let's get somebody else in here. I'm like, well, geez, they kind of wrote his character to be unlikable on mm -hmm. purpose, and it was hilarious. Um, and then I remember they. That the, then that actor wasn't there anymore. And then the writer kept adapting the script to kind of match the notes, match the notes, match the notes. And then they came to him and said, we don't like the show anymore. And I'm like, that's because nobody was protecting the vision. Yeah. You know, so it was a real valuable lesson for me to see that writer painfully get judged by somebody else's standard. And that's why I always say failure by your own standards is a form of success, you know, oh. If, and, and that's how I felt about my talk show that I did. You know, I wasn't going to surprise people or shock people or try to get something to be viral. Uh, you, know, you know, oh, you're going to go viral. You got to don't don't tell her this. Don't. It's just my show is going to be welcoming. You're going to be comfortable. You're going to be surprised. And just like you said to me at the top of this podcast, which was awesome. There's something that you really hate that you said. Don't worry about it. And, you know, we can help you take it out or something. And and I did that with my guests on my show. I would say, you know, they'd leave and say, oh, I wish I didn't say that. I said, do you want me to take that out? You know, it wasn't about catching somebody or catching them off guard. It was just about really being interested in people. I mean, as a nurse, I was interested in every single patient had an amazing story. Every life was an amazing story. Are you, and, do you think you're, you're a born people person in that way? Or was it something that developed through, you know, through nursing or before? Well, I was born into a crowd, you know, I'm his number six. So sure. <laughs> I've only <laughs> know how to be with a team. I, I don't know how to do anything alone. And I don't do it alone. Like the show I wrote by myself, you know, I was, and I had people on staff that would read stuff for me and get back to me. And they were amazing and supportive and brilliant. Um, but I was, you know, taking care of my mom at the time and she was taking care of me too. Um, it's always a two-way street mm -hmm. and writing kind of in this little bubble, but then to cast the show. And then I started rewriting to aim towards these people because they were all so wonderful for me. And, and then you get on set and that's another level of what do you think you'd do? Oh, then don't do that. Like if the kids said, well, we think it's funny if you're like, okay, you know, let's try that. We'll do one take your way. And then you get in the editing room and the best take wins. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's somebody else who came up with it. And sometimes it's my camera operator that comes up with the best idea. I love having an open set that way where everybody's included. Yeah. I think, I think that's really important. And we hear about that a lot, whether it's, you know, from a showrunner, from a director, from a creator, um, were you able to, as you start, you know, coming off of Grand and, and uh, a couple other acting series, mm -hmm. as you started to create your own stuff, were you able to hold on to that thing that you discovered about being the person steering the ship, keeping that vision? Yes. I mean, mm. um, absolutely. I mean, it was important to me that if, if, if the ship was going to go down, you know, <laughs> it was because I did the best I could 
of the quality that I wanted to attain. Mm-hmm. You know, and I worked with Jonathan Winters and Audrey Meadows on my second series. And Jonathan, you know, would just make comments to me. And so would Audrey Meadows, like, you know, stick to it and do your thing and believe in yourself. And um, they told me a lot of the heartaches of their own careers of you have to compromise. Yes, because everything takes a team, but you can't compromise your sense of self because then it's so hard when you fail. And I've failed many times, but I had a patient one time, a cancer patient say to me, the biggest regret of his life was that he feared failure. So he said, take my hand and look me in the eye. I said, okay, he goes, promise me when I'm gone, you'll go to California and you'll fail many times. And I said, you have a deal. Yeah. Rudy Dabriovich. And we made a deal. And yeah, after he's gone, I I, I went to California and I failed many times. (laughs) Were there, it feels like uh, the building was the first series and it feels like watching that again, it was so fully formed. Um, You knew what this show was. Were there fits and starts before that? Were there attempts to get things off the ground that were your voice and your point of view? Um, I wrote a whole season. I wrote 30 episodes, put them in a box. And I carried him over to CBS. They have a meeting with Jeff Sagansky, who was interested in me at the time for my work on Davis Rules, because they Mm -hmm. put me in that show to kind of, Jonathan Winters would never stay on script. So they hired me to play his daughter so that when he went off script, I would improvise based off of what he did and then bring it back to the script. That was my my job. And it was, it was, it was awesome. Uh, you know, unfortunately, when they edited it, they edited out most of his improvisation because honestly, his improvisation was so sharp, so clever, so on point, so character driven that the rest of the writing would pale in comparison. It's hard to match that energy of improvisation yeah. when it's somebody like Jonathan. Um, but still, it was the thrill of my life. And Audrey Medjo- Meadows was was amazing. But when I did the building, you know, I wrote all those episodes. I brought him to Jeff Zagansky and he's like, well, you know, you need more jokes. And the page I said, I don't write jokes. I said, but it's really funny. I kept telling him it's really funny. And then, you know, he was very nice to let me do it as a play in the basement of CBS to see how it would go. That's smart. So I did that, you know, George Clooney and and Mike Haggerty and Don, like mm-hmm. we just did this little play in the basement at CBS uh, with these little makeshift sets and folding chairs. You know, my, my brother, Pat was there and, um, you know, it was a big deal. And then afterwards, Jeff says, well, come to my office. And it's like, you know, eight o'clock at night. And I went up and he goes, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we're going to do your show. And I said, what? So we're going to do your show. And I said, oh my God. So he gave me a a line producer to work on a budget. I told him what sets I need, what I envisioned, picked all the furniture. And we shoot the show with all my friends from Second City with the rhythm that I dreamed of, the stuff that I longed for, the intelligence where you give the audience credit. They're going to go along with you on this emotional journey of humor. And it was it was the greatest experience in the world. And they said, well, you've got to get somebody to produce this. I said, I just produced it. So well, you got to get a partner. And so I sent, you know, I had met Letterman from being on a show and um, I sent him the tape and he goes, yeah, uh, he goes, I would love to have my name on this. I would love to get into primetime television. But he said, I don't, I'm not going to do anything, <laughs> you know, um, but I put his name on it and CBS like, oh, wow, you got a great partner. And somehow that gave him more confidence for me to do more episodes, which was wonderful. That's but so then interesting. when they were selling the show in the ads, you know, that's when I, when I saw the first time the promo for it, I went, oh, they're not promoting 
what I thought was the show. And that happens a lot, of course, for creative people. But it was like the bears, the girls, the guy, you know, they did that kind of and it was all boobs and our skirt. And I was like, what am I what am I watching? I wrote like I was inspired by Preston Sturges and I'm watching this, (laughs) you know, wacky wackadoo fest, you know. So um, that was hard, but still the opportunity to have done it. Sure. Absolutely. And have, you know, Carol, I mean, I had Donald O'Connor on that show from Singing in the Rain, played my father. And that's wild. We had so many wonder, Rudely, and just people that yeah. I knew from old movies. You know, I saw her in Witness yeah. for the Prosecution. And I called her. She's like, honey, I'd love to come on a sitcom. You know, and I'm like, wow, at least I get this experience. So it was the oh. experience. My patients gave me that, you know. That's that's incredible. Take the that's, moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good to hear. And and it sounds like it's something you've been able to keep through a 30 year career. Right. And, you know, we only did six episodes of that show. And then they mm-hmm. came to me and said, we have two actors on hold. Fire your two of your actors. Put these two because we have holding deals. I said, oh, it's going to change the whole show. Wow. And then they said, if you don't change it, we're going to cancel it. And I said, you know, it still hurts to this day. I said, OK, I. I guess you're going to have to cancel it because all the people that are on the show got me to this point. And that's why it's so beautiful and why it works. You know, my camera operators, just like the way I shot it. And they're like, okay, you did that. That's great. But now go back to this. And I'm like, no, please. Um, But, you know, even though CBS canceled it because I didn't, you know, jump through that one hoop there, but I couldn't jump through it because creatively I couldn't write somebody else's thing. I write my stuff. So, and then they came back to me and, um, you know, brought me back to do the Bonnie Hunt show where I played a reporter yeah. and all those new segments were improvised man on the street, nothing yeah. scripted. So fun. Those are a blast to watch. And there is, I mean, there's something about that show. I think that speaks, you know, it, it's still your voice. It's still the show you're, you you want to make. And what, what is layered on top of it feels like this love of TV and movies. Yeah. You, you get it. it. It's so right. much fun. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. I so appreciate the movies that gave me a friend when I was a kid, or I could yeah. get lost in or dream about, or yeah. What was formative for you? What was the stuff that you kept coming back to that you think helped form your sense of humor, your way of seeing the world, all of all of the you? Well, I loved all the Preston Sturges movies. My yeah. mom would like find a great movie, the TV guide when there was only 10 channels. Yeah. Now, whatever. And she would circle it. And if it was on like 1130 at night, she says, go to bed now. It would be a school night. And I'll wake you up for the movie. I'll make Chef Boyardee pizza. Oh my God. You know, and we get up and, and watch the movie. And, and she would tell me why it was so funny and what was so great about it. And I loved it. I loved it because, you know, storytelling is so powerful. My parents are raising seven kids. They're in the city. They're blue collar people. And then I'd watch them watching the Andy Griffith show and see them laughing and like all the stress, everything gone. And it was like, that's magic. I would look at them and look at the TV, look at them and say, I don't know you. It's medicinal. And I saw it in the cancer ward too. Hmm. I used to bring my VHS, VHS player in and bring in movies for them to watch. Wow. Stuff like a tree grows in Brooklyn, you know, or just anything that just so beautiful and well-written and people would just can escape. I mean, that's yeah. what it is. It's what a great book is, a great show, Yeah. Um, anything like that. But I was, I was inspired by so much books, television, um, Dick Van Dyke, the Andy Griffith mm-hmm. show, Mary Tyler Moore show, the Carol Burnett show. 
um, just people being truly funny and smart. Like we got it, you know, people yeah. get it. Of course. When, when did you start performing? When did that, were you like one of these, uh, watch me, watch me kids. Oh God, no, I was totally the opposite. I was, no, no, I was an audience. You know, I had my brothers and sisters. I really feel like I had no personality. And then when I came to Hollywood, I took a piece of each of theirs to make up myself. (laughs) I mean, that's just kind of how it was because my sisters and brothers were so funny, like witty. They did characters. My mom on a rainy day, she had this little reel to reel tape recorder and, you know, we'd all surround, she'd do the Alice Hunt talk show. And we'd all, we'd all get ready and do characters, you know, and it was like, I wanted to make my brothers and sisters laugh or be as funny as them. And, oh God, you know, just, you're so lucky when you don't have a lot as a kid, but you have creativity and love. It's like, so awesome. It's just, it's it's fantastic. It's so Um, true. So, so what sent you to second city? I, well, you know, I was a fan of Second City, went there when I was younger with the folks. And um, I remember thinking that's a job, like somebody can do that for a job. Uh, I went to nursing school. I was in nursing school for a short time when my dad died. And I was devastated because I was kind of going to nursing school to make him happy, uh, even though I loved it. Um, I, I wanted to be a storyteller. Yeah. And then I got assigned one patient. I was going to go to school for one more week after he died as a deal with my mom just to honor my father. But then I was quitting because I didn't want to even take care of anybody else because I was so devastated and mad at the world. And I didn't even want to see people laugh. The pain was overwhelming because he died, you know, instantly in the house of a heart oh. attack. And um, he was so young and strong and handsome and funny and wise. And out of, you know, 500 patients in this hospital, we, you get assigned one patient, you have theory in the morning or practical application in the morning, theory in the afternoon. And I get a patient, Mr. O'Brien. And, um, I'm thinking, I just got to get through this week. And the nursing instructor says, hunt, remember, you're not the first person whose father ever died. So you can't put it on your patients. And I'm thinking, oh my God, wait till Friday when I say I quit right to her face. And I'm thinking, how could she be so cold and mean? I didn't know that she was wise and older than me and trying to keep me tough. And she said, so don't be complaining to your patients. You're here to take care of them. I get Mr. O'Brien and he tells me, I guess you read my chart. I'm doomed. I have cancer. I said, oh no, Mr. O'Brien, you know, I believe in miracles. He said, well, I feel lucky I have cancer. I said, why would you say that? He said, oh, you know, I'm Irish. There's a lot you don't say to your families. I've been lucky to tell my family. I love them. My sons, I love them. I, I haven't said it before. And out loud, you know, my bride, he'd call his wife his bride. He's married 40 years. He said, I, I have a friend who died, you know, that died really suddenly, a guy I work with, and he is the nicest man in the world. And his kids were his greatest accomplishment. He'd always say that. And and, but he's like, I've been able to tell my family so much. And all I'm thinking is, oh my God, I didn't, there's so much I didn't get to say, mm. you know, to my dad and everything. And, you know, third day, it's Wednesday. I only got two more days to go. And I'm looking through Mr. O'Brien's chart and I see that he worked where my dad used to work. And um, wow. yeah, so I decided to close the door and tell Mr. O'Brien, I put a cold towel on his eyes because his eyes were bothering him. And I sat next to the bed and I took his arm. I said, Mr. O'Brien, can I tell you something? He said, what? And I said, I looked at your chart where you used to work and I think you might, you know, my dad. And um, he said, what's his name? And I said, Bob Hunt. And he said, oh, and he reached out and grabbed me. He said, that's the man I was talking about. Oh, yeah. So I think my dad got to heaven and said, don't want to go to Hollywood. Is there anybody (laughs) who can stop her? Um, So, yeah. So I stayed in nursing school to be close with Mr. O'Brien. And wow. uh, yeah, I've been very lucky, you know. I mean, that nursing background is still with me today. I 
you know, I'm a patient advocate and volunteer and it's a big part of my life. And it definitely keeps like the stuff you're talking about of being a pioneer or doing something unique in television and trying to push it through. Don't let it hurt you too much when it doesn't work out because, you know, life can be a lot harder. So are there, it's funny. I, I just saw my sister who is a nurse and we were talking about our jobs and talking yeah. about, uh, we were startled to discover the similarities right? Uh, in, you know, working with a team. And the biggest thing we took away was this working in a community, mm -hmm. being surrounded by a community of people yeah. who care about what they do. That's um, so true. And it's been heartening to see that you've worked with so many of the same people mm -hmm. uh, from show to show, even, even now on Amber Brown, I'm seeing a lot of the same names pop up. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a question about that. I would just want to say, like, talk about that. I think it's really, it's really nice to see. It's people that you admire, that you respect, that bring so much talent to the table. And most of all that, you, you know, whom you trust. Yeah. And that's a big thing in this business. I, you know, I've been hurt before by people I thought were really trustworthy, but they were so ambitious. And, you know, I've had things happen where you just go, oh, you know, it all ends up in my work. I always end up writing about it to get, you know, to kind of work through it. But I had a guy one time that I fired and he said, before you tell anybody, you know, let me have 24 hours. I want to tell my family. And I never really fired anybody. He was like the first person I said, this isn't working out. He just was a really toxic, like not a good environment with us together. And, um, and then I ran into the, one of the powers that be. And he said, are you okay? You know, I'm worried about you. I said, why? He said, well, so-and-so called an emergency meeting with me saying he's quitting the show. And he doesn't know, you know, how you're going to do it without him. I said, what, <laughs> you know, what was I going to do? Go, no, I fired him first. <laughs> hey, AC, you know, Hey, I mean, it was like, I'm the boss. I, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, uh, there's nothing I can do. I mean, he believes, <laughs> you know, so when that stuff like that, you just go, Oh my gosh, it hits you like a ton of bricks. But so when you got people you can trust and that are hard workers and you're working together, uh, everybody works so hard. I mean, the crews are there all night. And, and you know, it says I work with a lot of the same crew people too, because it's just like they just do so much for you. Yeah. You know, they're just, you're just, you can't do it without the worker bees. They get everything done. The crews get everything done. Yeah. We imagine it, they build it. It's like amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> Like Amber yeah. Brown's bedroom. I was so worried about every detail. I wanted her to have this headboard that she kind of made herself and the room to not be too big, make it small, you know, have her talk to her friend through the window instead of on a phone, like just bring back that feeling of neighborhood, of town, of hmm. being connected in the most intimate, special, real personal way. Um, but that the team makes, helps me make that happen. Yeah. It's there on the screen. It feels like, it feels and they like care. a real partner. Yeah, like they feel it, you know, and you yeah. can tell when your crew is with you. It's awesome. That's great it's like hear. the best part. It's the same thing about is like being a part of my all my siblings. You know, there's good times and there are bad times, but I'm always looking around the room. No, there's going to be somebody there to help you stand back up. That's it's great to hear. It's great to see. Let me ask. This feels like a directing question, uh, which is something I'm really interested in. And I, I imagine, you know, you're looking at directing as an extension of these things you're already doing. Yeah, it's like all storytelling. storytelling. Yeah. yeah. Um, but is there an approach to keeping the keeping the set open, keeping getting all of this input from everyone while still steering the ship? 
Yeah, you have to have a boundary because there's always going to be that one rogue person that's now, hey, I'm writing the whole <laughs> show, you know, she couldn't do it without me, you know, and you just go, oh, gosh, but but it's it's seldom. And um, I like to keep the levity that we're all in it together mm-hmm. and uh, not only levity of that, but the respect for it. I mean, uh, I've had camera operators uh, help me with so many things where I've thought of this and they thought of that. And then together we made it great. Um, But there is a fine line of having an open set and then keeping that boundary of, you know, okay, back to work, or I have to have this take a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, I worked with Frank Darabont on the Green Mile and he didn't want to change to an and, you know, and then I worked with Cameron Crowe and Jared Guire's like, what can you do in the kitchen, Bonnie? You want to say something there? I'm like, yeah, I'll stand behind her and do this. Or I'll look out the window and say, don't get the car. You know, it's a a collaboration. But I, I really value both. I value the great collaborator who let, wants me to improvise or work with them. And I also value, value that great visionary that just says it has to be this way. And I can be both. It just depends on the scene or the moment or what's so precious to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, it feels like, you know, the your vision for these things seems very fully formed, but there's clearly a discovery process as you yeah. go through it. Um, and definitely you to, open to that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, right. You have to be, um, and, and, you know, especially as a writer and the director, it mm-hmm. can be very insular. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask about return to me, uh, and adventures in features. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about just how, you know, getting that movie off the ground and what it did for you as a storyteller. Um, I wanted to direct. Mm-hmm. I had never directed, but obviously I'm the building and the Bonnie Hunt show. It was my vision. And I, I of course had to have a director on the set, but I was constantly going, Oh wait, can we put the camera mm-hmm. there? And they, I learned from them and they learned from me what I wanted, but I learned from them a lot of technical stuff. Um, but as an actress in a movie, you know, I was doing Only You with Sven Nykvist, one of the greatest cinematographers of all time. And he was teaching me all about light and just taking me under his wing. And I loved that man. He was so sweet and kind and a gentleman and brilliant. And working with Norman Jewis and Sidney Pollack and, you know, just been great, <laughs> a great experience. So when it came to return to me, I said, you know, I want to direct. And um, the agency, uh, CA at the time is like, well, you got to do some hours of television first. You can't just go do a movie. And I wanted to do a film because films are so much more intimate and forever, you, mm. you know, TV shows kind of in one ear and out the other, and you want more, give me more and more and more. And you kind of forget about the last one. Um, but I, I wanted to do a movie. So one agent in that room called me when I got home after the meeting where they said, you, we have to get a plan for you to do some television shows first our dramas or something to prove. And he said, you know, if you want, I can get you director's meetings, knowing that you're not going to get the job, but you can go, maybe some of these students, they're meeting directors anyway, they'll meet with you too. And you can get a feeling of what's expected in a director's meeting. I said, okay. So he sent me up for three meetings that week. And then I remember, I think I was at the premiere of like Sense and Sensibility or something. I don't remember it was. And that same agent walked down the aisle and he saw him and he came back and it was a Friday after the end of that week. And he said, you've been offered all three movies. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's unbelievable. Because somebody in that room said, I'll, I'll roll the dice on you. Go ahead and go and see what you can do. And I just was so lucky. And then return to me was, you know, 
MGM wanted to do a movie about a heart transplant where the woman, like the eyes of Laura Mars, where she gets a transplant and she oh, sees all the things. And I said, well, I don't know if I can really <laughs> write that, but I can, as long as I can get the emotion honest, like in the Wizard of Oz, which is the example I always use, you know, it's that movie gets me every single time. And there's a grown man in a lion suit. You know what I mean? And like, how does this work? It works because the emotion is honest. And I knew Return to Me was an absurd premise, but uh, I know if I wrote it with the emotion being so honest and so accessible and real, and it, it would be okay. And yeah. I'm so proud of that movie. I, I love I, it. I, I wanted to make something timeless and funny and joyful. You absolutely. You absolutely succeeded. And I think that emotional honesty, I mean, it feels like that's the thing we keep coming back to. And it's the thing you keep coming back to and all everything you've created. Yeah. And I think like, we talk about this a lot on this podcast is, you know, you write from a place of character, you write from a place of emotion. Of truth, the, right. The jokes will come. Yeah, of truth. Right. The jokes and, will come. Yeah. We, I mean, even I, talking about Mr. O'Brien, I think back, I'm like, do I remember it correctly? Did mm -hmm. I embellish it? Has the romantic side of me changed it to make my father's death more acceptable? I don't know. And it doesn't I know matter. I was there. I know it doesn't matter because every patient and every story is a gift. And then when you go into this world where somebody gives you an opportunity to tell a story, and besides everybody out there, every writer out there, you guys have your phones now. There's so many places to put content, make your own stuff. Don't wait for somebody to tell you that it's okay or it's good enough. It is good enough. It's good enough. It's your story. Yeah, absolutely. And and you get better by doing it. You learn by doing it. You refine right. your your the way you tell stories by by telling stories. Yeah, I want um, to do. I would love to direct another movie. I would really love the opportunity to do that. What are we waiting for? Let's do this. How do I make yeah. that? <laughs> I wrote it. I wrote a film during the pandemic, and um, you know, it's very suspenseful and um funny but still you know i i love to have my pathos um and uh i mean i think it's that irish catholic thing you're 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 happy but you're afraid you're going to be crying any minute it's like oh i won the lottery now i'm going to get hit by a bus you know it's kind of the way we think so it's it has that quality to it so i'm just about to shop that i'm going to wait for yeah. amber brown and then i'll go back out there cuz you know i dropped off the planet for a while showbiz wise cuz i was in chicago being a nurse. Well, I'm, I'm glad you haven't stopped. I'm glad you keep making this stuff and you're still you. Um, Amber Brown is great. Congrats on it. It's on Thanks. Apple plus. Uh, what's the premiere date? July 29th. Okay. Folks mm -hmm. check it out. Um, uh, Bonnie, thank you so much for chatting. We'll end as we always do by asking you what you are watching these days. Uh, what's getting you or reading or movies, TV, what's getting you excited or inspired right now? Uh, I'm watching the old man. Because is Jeff good? Bridges, did you did you see it yet? I they, haven't started it yet. Okay. It doesn't even really matter if it's perfect or great or right. Mm -hmm. It is uh, very wildly entertaining and I'm into it. Right. But it's the story behind it. Like Jeff Bridges having had blood yeah. cancer and surviving all the chemo, all the treatment, getting back on his feet and then getting hit and almost killed by COVID and being in the hospital for six, six weeks. And the legacy of the Bridges family. They remind me of my family, you know, like they could have lived right down the street from us the way his parents were. And when Bo Bridges was on my show, he's like, oh, my mom sees your mom on the show. Can my mom call in? I'm like, yeah, oh my God. you know, so like I, his mom called in and did one of her famous limericks, you know, and now both of our moms are gone. And it's like 
to me, it was more of a connection to Jeff. Like I, I wanted to see what he was doing and that he mm -hmm. survived everything. And he was dancing at his daughter's wedding recently. And, mm -hmm. um, and then you see that actor doing such a great job in these scenes being so real. He's one of the greats. He really is one of the, you know, the greats are the people you just don't notice them acting. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people get the awards where you really see them acting. Right. I don't want to see anybody acting. Yes. And you never see Jeff Bridges acting. He's phenomenal. Yeah. And so that oh, just, I love the story behind the story and seeing yeah. him work again. Cause oh, you know, no matter how old we get, we still want to work. We want to be seen. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a great recommendation for a great reason. Uh, thank you again. Such a pleasure to chat with you. I want to thank you for such a thoughtful interview with so much respect. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for embracing my work and, you know, understanding it. I've been a fan uh, since I was a teenager, an old teenager, uh, but a teenager. No, it's okay. <laughs> the privileged age. Remember that. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.